Hello, and welcome to a new episode of the Indologia podcast, in which I am going to talk about a very old time, that even for us Hindus, who are a very ancient people, even for us, that is a time that is rather old, a time not spoken of much, even amongst the historically conscious circles of the Indic wing. So grab your cup of coffee, your cup of tea, or if you are the kind of person who listens to this podcast while on a run or while doing cardio, like I do, then grab a bottle of water because you must stay hydrated. I usually listen to podcasts while uh, doing some sort of a cardio because, because like most people in the world, I also do not like cardio. So listening to a podcast makes it that much more less, or rather that much less painful. It's too early in the morning. It's in fact very early in the morning and it's a rather cold morning. You know, it's the kind of mornings you don't really want to speak, but speak we shall. And I want to start with telling you guys about my favorite hobby, which is listening to music. I like listening to music, but then you'll say, what is the big deal? Everybody, or rather most people like listening to music. But see, I really, really like listening to music. It's very rare that you'll find me without music. When I'm working, there's music playing in the background. When I'm traveling, I always have the headphones on. I'm probably never without music. Maybe I spend six, six hours a day just playing music somewhere around me. And I love discovering new music from whichever country, whichever culture, Carnatic classic to bossa nova to thrash, French hip-hop, Romanian gypsy music. I'll listen to anything. Because music, apart from, you know, being fun, being something you can dance to, it is also a medium of telling stories. We have so many of our cultural, our uh, dharmic stories, which are told uh, through the medium of music. If it wasn't for that, we'd probably have lost a lot of them. So I'm a big believer in the fact that history should be studied from primary sources, from things that have been written by people from that particular time. But we also have to pay a certain amount of attention to remembered history, to civilizational memory, so to say. Things that people who went through that history remembered and passed on to their descendants. Because songs and music and stories, they have a certain history in them. So, I like listening to music and I like discovering new music. And recently, I ended up discovering a Iranian song, a Persian song rather, and more importantly, this was a song from a pre-Islamic Persia. This is before Iran had become Islamic. And at that time, it was largely Zoroastrian. Zoroastrians are what we normally call the Parsis in India. And their religion is Zoroastrianism, which they were practicing in Persia, modern-day Iran, before the Islamic jihadis took over and uh, subverted and destroyed yet another culture. But what's important about this song was the lyrics. And uh, when I paid attention to the lyrics, I was uh, astonished. I was shocked. Because uh, they spoke about us, or rather, our ancestors. And I want to read out these lyrics for you right now. The lyrics are in Middle Persian, which was spoken in the Sasanian era. And they're from a song, a folk song, which talks about the fall of the Sasanian Empire at the hands of the Arabian Caliphate. The song goes that... A man should be dispatched, a clever interpreter, who may go and tell to India what we have seen from the hands of the Arabs. These are the opening lines of the song. And 
one thing I want to point out here is that the word that they use for India is not Hindustan or uh, not even Bharat. What they use is Hindugan, H-I-N-D-U-G-A-N, Hindugan. And knowing that, and knowing how similar the language of the Persians was to us and uh, originated out of Sanskrit, it's probably what they mean is Hindugan, and it's just the pronunciation that changed when it went over there. So, uh, very curious that just like the, the Eastern people addressed all Indians as Hindu, the Persians as well called India as Hindugan or Hindugan. And that's just my speculation. So, again, once again, the lyrics went, a man should be dispatched, a clever interpreter, who may go and tell to India what we have seen from the hands of the Arabs. All at once, they have weakened our religion and killed our kings. We have become inferior. Now they are like kings. They have taken away our sovereignty, not by virtue and valor, like the noble Aryans, but in mockery and scorn, like the demons. Now this is a, a second point that caught my fancy, that they are talking about the Arabs, and of course we know the history, that they came and they beat the Persians, and it became an Islamic uh, republic. But he says that they have taken away our land, and the, they, they fought not with virtue and valor, like the noble Aryans. Now again, the word Aryans here doesn't mean what the Western uh, historians and the so-called Indologists uh, think it means. It's got nothing to do with the whole Aryan invasion theory. It's more to do with the people uh, of the Vedic era, how they call themselves the Aryas. So they are clearly hinting at some sort of a battle that must have happened back in the day, that the battle they must have fought with some people who were very respectable and honorable and virtuous. So that although the Persians got beaten by those people, they still respected them for having a certain virtue, for having certain morals, which clearly, in this song, they said that the Arabs do not have. So they want a messenger to be sent to India, a smart messenger to be sent to India to tell them, look, this is what we are suffering at the hands of the Arabs. And what do they aim to achieve from this certain messenger? Well, they say it in the chorus when they say that, when will a courier come from India to say that the King Vahram has come, having a thousand elephants? So what they're expecting is that some King Vahram from India will come with a thousand elephants and save them. Vahram is not really an Indian name, not a Hindu name. So I'm guessing it's Vikram. Was there a King Vikram in those times? And considering how popular the name Vikramaditya was, maybe they're referring to a Vikramaditya. And once again, it's just my speculation. And uh, the thoughts that were going through my mind when I was listening to this song. The, the Persians have this folk song that their people remember even today. Because this is a recent version of the song that a Persian man recorded. Because as you know, there is a certain awakening going on in Iran right now. There's a lot of resistance to the Islamic ways, especially against the hijab. It's been all over the news, so I'm pretty certain uh, most of you know about it. And there is a certain resistance, a certain ex-Muslim movement going on in Iran, as well as the other parts of the world, but you know, particularly strong in Iran. So the fact that they still remember this song, a song about sending a messenger to India asking for help of the King Vahram who will come with thousand elephants. And my next thought was that we in India, the products of a British-installed education system, we would uh, find it difficult to believe because we have been taught that, you know, you Indians, you Hindus especially, you have no religion. 
you have no culture you have no kings you have nothing of greatness in your history you have nothing to look up to no bravery you're cowards you're bloody cowards the foreigners came they invaded you they took over your lands they killed your people the invaders did whatever they wanted to do with you you people are cowards that's what we have been told and yet here you have a song from back in the day and this is a song about the persians asking for help from the hindus please come and save us now the next question that would arise in my mind is why us why aren't they asking anybody else why are they asking us okay we were rich in those times we were powerful but could there be another reason why they are asking us for help and as i was thinking of it i thought of similarities between the parsis and us hindus and i do have a few parsi friends and i've spent uh, a lot of time hanging out with them and of course i've gotten to know that culture pretty well in fact recently uh, last year i was a witness to a parsi wedding ceremony and uh, seeing some of the rituals they were doing especially uh, at one point they took the bride's footprints on the ground i remember that very clearly and i remember thinking that uh, that is uh, a lot of the stuff they're doing is quite similar to what we are doing and i just uh, chalked it off to the fact that they've been living amongst us for such a long time so perhaps they've picked up uh, some of our habits but there is a lot more than that the importance of fire in their religion for example no other religion has that none of the monotheistic faiths have that and uh, even if you go to their scriptures for example the Zoroastrian text Vendidad gives a list of 16 ancestral lands the ancestral lands of the Persian people but funnily enough none of them are in mainland Iran like in our text we you can figure out what places are being mentioned in Rigveda you can figure out okay these are our places you know the places in Akhandavarat but in the Persian texts none of their ancestral lands are in Iran so where are they will they mostly uh, spread around Afghanistan and the Indus Valley region again very peculiar right most of these territories overlap with the territories mentioned in the rigveda so you have what they call hapta hindu which is sapta sindhu they have harahavati which is the saraswati because there is a tonal phonetic shift between the persian from those times and uh, our language so our s becomes their h so when we say sindhu for them it's hindu and that's how the word came so sapta sindhu becomes hapta hindu saraswati becomes harahavati and asura becomes ahura now remember this last word because i'm going to come back to this later the linguistic similarities between the old western language of the zoroastrians and the sanskrit there are plenty of them for example the zoroastrian gatha which are composed by their prophet zarathustra they form the core ideology of zoroastrianism and they're called the gathas and of course i'm sure all of you are familiar with this word gatha and even if you look at their yasna text which is something like what we have in the rigveda describes a lot of rituals and rites etc there are a lot of words that directly correspond to the vedic language the yasna is directly proportional to yagna or yagya the homa word in the yasna is uh, the equivalent of our soma the havani is the equivalent of the vedic havan the mitra is of course the vedic mitra so lot of similarities and another thing that i found out about the persians is that like us like our vedic texts have been passed on from generation to generation orally 
they've not been written down till recent past and they had been passed on just by memory and vocally the same is the case with the parsi texts the avesta has been passed on learned by heart and passed on generation to generation so there are a lot of uh, similarities between the two people the vedic people and the persians and of course most of us know the recent history of the parsis that after a long time of uh, prosecution at the hands of the arab islamists they had to leave persia they came to india mostly around gujarat and uh, they took shelter and since then they have prospered in our country but why did they come to india why did they not go west north somewhere else why india could it be they have some sort of a prehistoric connection with us could it be that once upon a time they were us are we the same people short answer yes long answer absolutely yes the relationship between the vedic people and the proto iranians who were to become persians started with manu who established his kingdom in the north indian town you all must have heard of ayodhya his direct succession went through his eldest son ikshvaku who was the founder of the suryavanshis who stayed in ayodhya built a nice uh, legacy over there one of manu's other heirs was his daughter ila whose son puduravas started the chandravanshi dynasty it was originally based in pradeshthanpur near prayag their descendant nahusha moved westwards towards the saraswati basin and his son yayati had five sons and these five sons became the patriarchs of the five tribes of the vedic era the purus the anus the druyus turvasas and the yadus the puru tribe the most popular of them occupied the center of the whole area the center being the whole saraswati valley saraswati basin region the anus occupied the area which was to the north of it kashmir the druyus founded the tripura kingdom the turvasa founded the yavana kingdom and the yadus were the yaduvanshis from whom our dear friend shri krishna comes from as per the history told in the puranas all the tribes the indo-iranians lived with each other for a very long time in the indus valley and uh, in the puru tribe the pauravas king bharata started the bharata clan which would go on to have such a pivotal role not just in indian history but also in the development of the vedic culture around the time that the first vedic hymns were being composed or being written a war erupted between the puru and the anu tribes on one side and the druyus on one side the war ended up uh, being won by the puru and gang and the druyus were forced to go west from the punjab and they went towards what is today's afghanistan that is why the uh, gandhar region in the afghanistan is named after one of the druyu chieftains their place in west punjab was taken by the anu tribe things went back to normal till the next big event which many of you must have heard of the dasharajnya or the battle of the 10 kings those of you who like reading fantasy or who've read tolkien will recall from the book the hobbit there was the battle of the five kings well guess where did he get the idea from yep so the battle of the 10 kings this battle was fought between the king sudas who was the puru king a descendant of the bharata tribe versus a coalition of about 13 if i recall correctly or 13 anu tribes of punjab 
these Anu tribes contained the Parsavas or the Parsus, who were the future Persians, the Parthavas, the Protopathians, the Pakhtas, who would go on to become the Pakhtuns or the Pashtuns or the Pathans, and the Balanas, who were the future Balochi people. All these tribes got together and they had a battle with the King Sudas. Some say King Sudas was the aggressor, some say the other party was the aggressor. I think a lot more study needs to be done to figure that out. But what we do know, without fail, is that King Sudas won the battle and the coalition of these tribes lost the battle. And as a result of this, they lost territory and they had to migrate out west. Now the story that has been told by many people is that after this, the Persu tribe left uh, the Indus Valley region, they went to Persia and they became the Persian people. But you know, it's not really like that. Migrations don't really happen so quickly in such a short time. So for many years after, many centuries after, they kept living in and around the same region, mostly Afghanistan. So the Persu tribe didn't exactly go to Iran or the Persia of that time immediately. But yes, we can say with certainty that the culture that was to dominate Persia till the Islamic times was an offshoot of the Vedic culture. The Persu tribe eventually made its way to Persia and the local people, the natives of that region, happily accepted their language, their religion and their culture which they had carried forward from their ancestral lands and their Vedic ancestors. But then why is Zoroastrianism so different from Hinduism today? Why do the way they practice their religion different from the Vedic people? Well, the convenient story that has been told is that Zoroastrianism is the first monotheistic faith and that uh, they were just like the Vedic people doing all the rituals, uh, very, very close to uh, the Hindu term. And yet, somehow, this prophet came, Zoroaster or Zarathustra, he came and he established this uh, monotheistic worship of Ahura Mazda and he said, look, this is the only god you can worship and there was a great battle, etc, etc. But that is not really the truth. Zarathustra was, surely, he was a prophet of the Parsis, no doubt about it. He's very, very important in their uh, theological system. He was an Atharvan Purohit. He was Atharvan Purohit by birth. But he held the Asuras in very high esteem and he put the Devas down. So the Vedic people, our people, worshipped the Devas. And they said the Asuras are bad. And to be honest with you, I want to make one clarification here. The Asuras were not always bad. It is just a recent thing. And of course, we are Hindus. For us, recent is like 2000 years. So the Asuras were not really bad. In the Rig Veda, Rishi Vashisht is often using the term Asura as a very positive, as a symbol of strength. The Rig Veda 7.6.1, Rig Veda 7.30.3, uh, 7.21.7. The term Asura is used in a very positive manner. And let's not forget that the Asuras and the Devas, they both of them, their origin is the same. They both are the sons of Prajapati. And yet, it seems that as time went on for the Vedic people, that is our ancestors, the term Asura became negative. It started having negative connotations, but for the Parsis, or rather the Persians of those times, the Asuras kept having that importance, kept having that divine importance. Why was that? Well, one of them is the reason that Zarathustra, the prophet of Zoroastrianism, he held the Asuras in very high esteem, but he put the Devas down. In fact, the major Western text, Vendedad, its short form, 
Vidhevdat literally means given against the Devas. So it's very clear that uh, the Devas are being put down and they're uh, glamorizing and glorifying the Asuras. Yet it's not true that it, it was Zoroaster or Zarathustra who uh, brought this monotheistic aspect into their religion. These beliefs were being formed over the centuries. Over times, these beliefs had been taking shape. And the differences between the Mazdaism and the Vedic traditions predated Zarathustra by generations. He was simply a spokesperson for already existing beliefs. and But he's so important for them because he's the first one who put everything down on paper, who sort of codified everything in a systematic manner. But yet, Zoroastrianism was far from being any sort of a monotheistic system because they still worshipped other gods. They had other gods like uh, Anahita, like Mitra. They still remained popular deities. And the similarities between the two systems can be seen by, and I find this quite funny in, in a sense, that the Vedic people considered themselves as the Aryas and the Iranians as Anarya. While the Iranians considered themselves to be the Aryas and they considered the Vedic or the Parva tribe as Anarya. So in a way, they were both uh, following a similar system in a rather peculiar manner. But today, of course, the word Asura has a negative meaning for us people, for the Vedic people. And one of the reasons for that could be the great battle of the Varsagira, which happened a few generations after uh, the Dasharajanya. And the center of this battle was the Afghan region, which was sort of a borderline between the Vedic Indian region and the Afghanian Iranian territory near the Bolan Pass in southern Afghanistan. It was the Asura worshipping Atharvans versus the Angirasa, the Parvas versus the Anvas, the Zoroaster versus the Rishi Rajasthan, King Vistapa versus Maharaja Somka. This great battle was remembered by both the Iranians and the Indians as the Devasura conflict, Dev versus the Asuras. And uh, depending on which source you read, that side won the battle. Everybody claims to have won the battle, and I think uh, there is no clear-cut uh, winner in this battle. I think it's one of those battles of history when the conflict goes on and at some point the battle is just called off and certain territories, certain uh, political boundaries are established and everybody just goes back to living their own lives. But it had one impact that uh, lasts till today. The separation of the Persu tribe or the Persians was final. The Vedic people or the Indians started seeing Asuras in a negative manner, and uh, the Persus, the Persians, got even further from the Vedic roots. And uh, this probably happened also around the collapse of the Indus civilization. So a lot of things happening at the same time. Zarathustra, the prophet of the Zoroastrian people, died in this battle, and uh, the Parvas, the Puru tribe, they consolidated their control over the Indus, the Gangetic valleys, and as a result ensured that the Indian subcontinent was inherited by the followers of the Vedic tradition. And even after this battle and the losses that it caused, the people went living their lives in a rather peaceful manner. Boundaries were drawn, separation was finalized, yet everybody lived peacefully. None of the bloodshed and the goriness and the ugliness that the world saw after the advent of the Abrahamic religions. So going back to the song that I was talking about in the beginning, when they were speaking about losing a battle to the noble and virtuous people, the people who were not like the Arabs, who beat the Persians with deceit, with cunning ways. So maybe 
the Persians were referring to one of these battles that they lost to a noble foe, but at least they didn't harm them, they didn't suppress them, they didn't destroy their culture, their theological system, like the Arabs did. And it also makes me wonder that had that messenger been sent to India, had he come to one of the Hindu kings, perhaps the history would have been different. If the Hindu kings had gone in defense of the Persians, they would have seen firsthand the Islamic barbarians pillaging, raping, killing. And perhaps then they would have got a sense of Shatrubod. Then maybe, just maybe, Bin Qasim wouldn't have conquered Sindh. And maybe we would have been prepared for Mahmud. Perhaps Prithviraj wouldn't have shown such mercy. The whole course of history would have changed if the Indians had just gone to defend the Persians. But again, this is just speculation because we don't even know if that messenger was ever sent or did he ever reach India. But one cannot help but think how drastically the course of history would have been changed had that happened. Now, of course, knowing this history, it makes even more sense that after being suppressed and oppressed by the Islamic barbarians, the Parsis ran away to India and found shelter here because there was a certain civilizational memory clearly alive in their minds that that is our ancestral land. So let's go back to it because when in trouble, everybody runs to their mother. So the Parsis came back to the motherland. And of course, they've done very well over here thanks to their association with the British, thanks to their association with the shipping industry and of course the rise of Bombay because uh, as Surat fell, Bombay rose and uh, in the new Bombay, the Parsis smuggled opium with the British, repaired ships for them at first, then started building ships for them, did a lot of trade and by the end of the 18th century, Parsis owned more than half the tonnage of all the Indian ships that touched the port of Bombay. So, very successful and uh, they also uh, did a lot of business with the British. All the cotton that was being taken from India by the British, sometimes legally, sometimes at extremely cheap prices, most of the times illegally, the Parsis helped them with the shipping of the raw materials to the British mainland where it was manufactured into clothes and once those clothes came back to India, a lot of the Parsi traders were involved in retailing them and distributing them uh, especially in central and southern India. So the Parsis clearly have done very well. Even today in Mumbai, you can see some of the best real estate in the city being owned by the Parsis. There are a lot of Parsi colonies in Mumbai and uh, only Parsis live there. Outsiders cannot even buy any properties over there. So they are certainly a very successful community, the Tatas and the Wadias. And if you go and uh, study their history, you'll see that it's a case of generational wealth. But unfortunately, there are not many Parsis left to enjoy these riches because according to the 2011 census, there are only 57,264 Parsis left in India. So, as I always say, demography is destiny. Well, now that we are talking about Iran already, there is a rather recent story about Iran that I want to recite here. This is about the operations of uh, the RNAW in Iran and uh, the involvement of a certain peculiar Vice President of India, Hamid Ansari. This excerpt that I'm reading for you now is from a book by R.K. Yadav called Mission RNAW. So the story goes, Muhammad Hamid Ansari was one of the few Muslim diplomats 
in the Ministry of External Affairs. He was posted ambassador to Tehran in late 1990. After a few months of Ansari's taking over this assignment, one personal assistant, a fellow named Kapoor, was kidnapped from Tehran International Airport by the Iranian intelligence officials while he was returning from leave in India. This young official was tortured for three days and his whereabouts were never informed to the Indian embassy by the Iranian government. He was continuously drugged and was given inhuman treatment during all these days before he was thrown on a lonely road in Tehran. Ansari, Hamid Ansari, did not pursue this matter with the Iranian government, much to the discomfort of the staff posted in the mission at Tehran. The Kashmiris from India were imparted religious preachings at a religious centre at Qom, near Tehran, by the religious clergy of the Iranian counterpart. RNAW officials posted in the mission were monitoring the activities of these trainees and reporting it to the headquarters with information to Ansari, who was against some of these reports. One RNAW officer, D.B. Mathur, had developed his contacts in this religious centre and used to procure inside information through his sources, which was known to Hamid Ansari. One morning, when Mathur was on his way to the embassy, he was kidnapped by the Iranian intelligence officers and he was taken to some unknown destination. When Mathur did not report for his duties, his colleagues made efforts to trace him in Tehran. Hamid Ansari sent a casual report on Mathur's disappearance to the Ministry of External Affairs and did not take up this matter seriously with the Iranian government. This is the second time he has not taken up a matter with the Iranian government. The staff inside the Indian mission was agitated on the lackadaisical attitude of Hamid Ansari in this serious matter. Finally, after two days of this incident, all the wives of the staff members of the mission, numbering more than 30, assembled outside the gate of the embassy to protest against Ansari for his inaction in getting Mathur released. Initially, these ladies were not allowed to enter the Indian mission premises, but on intervention by some senior officials, they were sent into the building. And still, Hamid Ansari refused to meet these ladies in spite of their repeated efforts through his personal staff. When the situation reached a boiling point, wife of D.B. Mathur, who was abducted, along with some other ladies, barged into the room of Hamid Ansari and rebuked him for his inaction to trace his staff member. Hamid Ansari was caught on wrong foot and faced this ugly situation without any provocation. In the meantime, one of the staff members of RNAW, N.K. Sood, telephoned the author, which is R.K. Yadav, who's writing this book. So, N.K. Sood telephoned the author and gave details of this incident to take up this matter with the Indian government. Next day, the author, R.K. Yadav, met Atal Bihari Vajpayee, who was the leader of the opposition, when Narsimara was the Prime Minister. The author briefed Vajpayee about this incident in Tehran and Vajpayee immediately talked to Narsimara in this regard who promised a prompt action in this matter. D.B. Mathur was released by the Iranian intelligence officials when the Prime Minister's office intervened and took up this matter with the Iranian government. Mathur was subjected to third-degree torture by the Iranians to get inside information of RNAW agents in Iran, which he refused to divulge. Later on, Mathur was prematurely withdrawn from Tehran and ordered to leave within 72 hours, back to India. It was the most unfortunate incident when Ansari did not get it resolved at his own level and the Indian government had to intervene to get released its official from the Iranian intelligence officials. 
most of the operations of our NAW received a big setback after this incident, since its operatives became insecure due to the inaction of Hamid Ansari. Our NAW operatives had penetrated inside the Qom religious center to monitor the activities of some Kashmiri elements, whose activities were detrimental to the security situation in Jammu and Kashmir. But this incident made them abort for the infiltration inside that center at that point. Later on, a senior RNAW official was sent to get the factual details of this matter. That officer also indicted Ansari in his assessment to the RNAW secretary Narsimhan, who chose not to rake up this matter with the government in view of his own incapabilities. Later, one security official, Mohammad Umar, posted at the embassy was approached by the Iranian intelligence officers to work for them. Umar refused to oblige them and informed his seniors in the embassy, who in turn briefed Ansari that Umar could be targeted after his denial to Iranian intelligence officials. But few weeks thereafter, Umar was also kidnapped by the intelligence officials of Iran and severely beaten up and thrown at a secluded place outside Tehran. Once again, for the third time, Hamid Ansari did not protest to the Iranian government about the torture of Umar and he instead asked Umar to remain silent. But when Umar wanted to take up this matter with the Indian government, Ansari wanted to get him deported to India on some flimsy ground. When this fact was known by other RNAW operatives, they protested to the station chief and asked him not to make Umar a scapegoat just because of Ansari. The station chief Venugopal relented and refused to cooperate with Ansari in this matter. It would be pertinent to mention that Hamid Ansari developed very good personal relationship with the Iranian government, but did not want to rake up these kidnapping issues to bring any sort of bitterness for his own benefit. His son got married in a highly connected Iranian family, which was a questionable alliance. This Hamid Ansari later on became, of course, the vice president of our country. Just imagine, this is why I often say that if somebody does not believe in God, just tell him to go through the history of India. And I'm not even saying history of 500 or 1000 years ago. I'm just saying the history of the last 75 years. Make somebody go through the history of India for the last 75 years and they will absolutely start believing in God. Because for all this time and for a much longer time, our country has been nothing but Bhagwan Bharose. Well, this is it for this episode of the podcast and I hope you really enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed telling these tales to you. Once again, if you want to read more about the stuff that has been discussed in this podcast, you can read The Rig Veda Historical Analysis by Srikant Talageri. He has another book uh, which uh, shines a bit more of a light on the Persian connection, which is Rig Veda and the Avesta, the final evidence. And as far as the story about RNAW is concerned, the book is called Mission RNAW by R.K. Yadav. If you want me to cover any particular topics, send me a DM. Let me know what you think about the podcast. Give me any feedback whatsoever. And of course, it goes without saying that you should follow me on all these social media platforms. Instagram, Twitter, WhatsApp, Telegram. I am on all the platforms. The name is the same in Dologia. The name is the same on YouTube as well. Please go and subscribe to my channel. And till the next time I see you, Jai Hind, Vande Mataram.